so much of what I'm unlearning around how I viewed my own disability is that it's okay to ask for help. Disability or not, all of us need help in one way or another. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Tiffany Yu, CEO and founder of Diversibility, an award-winning social enterprise to rebrand disability through the power of community. Tiffany recently delivered a keynote address at our sixth annual Women on the Move Leadership Day, and she was one of our top-rated speakers. I'm thrilled to be sitting down with her one-on-one to bring her messages directly to you. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It is great to be able to speak with you again. Yeah, so great to see you. So just want to let our audience know, it's been a few weeks since we had you in at our sixth annual Women on the Move Leadership Day from J.P. Morgan Chase. And first of all, I just want to say thank you again for joining us for that. It was such a pleasure. That was so fun. It was my first in-person speaking engagement in 18 months. Well, you did a wonderful job. And I will tell you this, I'm still getting feedback from my clients and colleagues about your unbelievable presentation and how your words really, really moved people. So I'm so happy to be able to speak with you again and bring your message and your story out to our podcast audience. Yeah, let's do it. Well, first of all, I just want to read some of the comments that I got so people know exactly how much your words resonated. So this was from an employee who told us, Tiffany Yu was the best part of the event. Her message is applicable to all individuals, not just a segment. It allowed me to consider myself in a different lens, causing positive self-reflection. I really like that one. And then one of our clients told us, the best part of the event was Tiffany Yu and seeing how her life is very similar to mine. Her story was very interesting and knowledgeable. So let's tell your story. I would love for you to tell our audience a little bit about your background. Sure. So I am the first generation daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant and a refugee from the Vietnam War. And that will make more sense in a second. And so a lot of the work I do today is around disability inclusion. And I talk a lot about how many of us who have disabilities have what I call two disability origin stories. So I'll share both of them briefly. The first happened when I was nine years old. My dad on the way driving home from the airport, dropping my mom off at the airport, unfortunately lost control of the car. I ended up acquiring a slew of injuries, including shattering a couple bones in one of my legs and permanently paralyzing one of my arms. And much, much later, I would end up being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And I share that because I have both visible and non-visible manifestations of disability in this one body. The second disability origin story actually happened when I was 21, so about 12 years after the car accident. And the second story to me is when someone who is disabled decides to take pride or ownership in their disability identity. So not all of us can be loud and proud all the time, but and many of us who are disabled may never get to that second story. But so much of my work today is about how can we get as many disabled people as possible to that second story, to saying, I know our external environment is telling us that we should feel shame about the way that our bodies and our minds work but I refuse to go about carrying that weight and I just want to be myself. The fact that you describe it in two ways, you know, your first disability story about what happened to you and your second, which is really that notion of taking pride in who you are and really wanting to share your messages with the world is so powerful. I think it really brings to mind the notion that we're never done, right? And and things that happen to us as events, no matter when they occur and what they are, they don't have to be the last of our stories 
And I just want to say, I think the way you are so honest in sharing your story and so open about it really means a lot to me and means a lot to so many people. How did you become comfortable sharing your story? And tell us about the evolution of how you got to this place. I think for me, it really came from, you know, my therapist, he said to me, he said, the only way out is through. And I think for a long time, and this is where being the daughter of Asian immigrants comes in, I felt so shameful about the car accident. I I actually didn't tell anyone about it for 12 years because not only was it a traumatic car accident that happened, I lost a parent. And in certain Asian cultures, having someone die in your family was seen as ill fate on the entire family. Now my body was disabled and and having a different body is, is also something that my family didn't want me to bring attention to. Because I had ended up suppressing all of that for so long, not validating my story, not telling anyone about it, that's actually where I think my symptoms of PTSD ended up becoming so severe to the extent that, you know, coming back to my therapist said the only way out is through, I had to acknowledge what was going on rather than letting this story be trapped in my body. So that was a very, I would call it kind of like a woo-woo way of explaining it, but I got to a point where... I looked at my adolescence from nine years old until 21 years old, and I felt like I was walking around as a shell of a human being because I couldn't let anyone into what I was experiencing, or I felt like I couldn't. And I had internalized so many messages that this story didn't matter and to just kind of bulldoze through it. And I think what we're realizing, not only through the pandemic, but as we, I hope, build more of a a culture and a world filled with compassion, is that all of us are going through things at one time or another. And the way that we heal and the way that we grow is actually by letting other people be witness to the things that we're experiencing. And so for me, it was really kind of being given that permission slip when I was a senior in college. That was that that age 21 second story, being given that permission slip to say, we're really curious to hear more about your story. I know that for the past 12 years, for the past decade plus, no one has given you that opportunity before, but here you go. And so much of the work that I do now is that permission slip, if we feel like we need it. And I hope that there are people who go around to who don't feel like they need a permission slip to go and share their story or be the most authentic version of themselves. But for me, it was kind of just being given that that first opportunity. You lost your father in that car accident, which would be traumatic in and of itself. And then you had a life-changing injury as a result of that. And so I just want to acknowledge just how much happened to you from one event at such an early age and to say just how sorry I am about that and how unbelievable you are to use your platform now, if I could say platform, but use that experience to really help others. And I'm curious, you mentioned getting a permission slip to tell this story Was there a person behind that? Was there a class or an experience you had? What was that trigger that actually made you feel comfortable? I first want to comment on the first part, which is I feel like my story is more than just a disability story. I know I open by saying here are my disability origin stories, but really it's a story about grief which I think all of us can relate to. It's not only the grief that we understand in in its most concrete form, which is losing a loved one, it's the grief of losing my childhood and it's the grief of the way my body was before. 
And so part of my broader mission is also how can we destigmatize grief because it's something that all of us will experience at any one point in time. So I, I just wanted to comment on that. I will say to that permission slip, my roots come back. So I was an intern at Goldman Sachs. And while I was a summer intern, we had an opportunity to meet with the recruiters every week to get feedback on how we were doing. And I was in investment banking. So like any other college senior, I was having a tough summer, very sleep deprived, very demanding. And I remember going in and meeting with the recruiter and she had given me some some constructive feedback around attention to detail and over communicating. Those are two of the main things I learned when I was in banking. But I walked out of that room and the recruiter, her name was Jenny. And as I was walking out, she said, Tiffany, I want you to know that you deserved your place here. You don't need to have a chip on your shoulder. And in a way, I often joke that starting my career in financial services gave me my permission slip and gave me my voice because what she saw was me and my potential. And that is not where I was sitting. I was sitting down on myself. And in a way, it was that tough love moment that said, what if I created a community where we treated disabled people at our potential? Here is someone who was now saying, Tiffany, you've been operating below where you should be, and I see you for where you can be. So a couple of years ago, I challenged myself to send out a handwritten thank you note to 52 people, so one a week, to people who I felt like had positively influenced my life. And I sent her the card, letting her know how much that small act during my summer internship had impacted me and had positively influenced me. And what I wanted listeners, your listeners, to walk away from this from is sometimes that passing conversation, that little micro moment to you can make such a deep impact, powerful impact on someone else. I love that reminder. I think to managers out there, you have to remember that it can be those small moments when you're with people that you see them for who they are, that you pull out something from them that is such a trait and such a skill and just bring that up more often. What are other stories of inclusion that you've shared and experienced in your life? So I get some version of this question a lot because a lot of the work I do is around disability allyship, right? And so in the U.S., about 26% of the U.S. population identifies as having a disability, but that also means 74% do not. And so a lot of my work is how can we bring in people who don't have lived experience into our work? A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to speak at and attend the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos. And this is where world leaders are there and academic presidents and CEOs of, of large companies, including JP Morgan. And so I was there and a large part, and actually I'll relate this back to my, to my finance days as well, but a large part of the event was these networking dinners. And as someone who has a paralyzed arm, interestingly enough, attending these dinners was probably my biggest fear because at the dinners, you've got a bread basket being passed around, which makes me curious about how I'm going to pull the piece of bread out of the basket. Then you've got some fancy meat dish coming out if it's chicken or it's or it's steak. And in my mind, all I'm thinking about is how am I going to cut this? How am I going to enjoy this meal? And I actually end up spending more time thinking about how I'm going to eat rather than engaging in the conversation, right? The whole point of a networking meal is the networking part, but instead I'm there trying to navigate different utensils. And Will I Am uh, of the Black Eyed Peas happened to actually just be sitting next to me facilitating the conversation at my table. 
what ended up happening was the chicken dish ended up coming out. And I think he had the situational awareness. And I wanted to repeat that situational awareness, which to me ties back to this whole idea of inclusion, acts of inclusion, to see that I wasn't able to use one of my arms. He's still facilitating the conversation. He pulls my plate closer to him, continuing to facilitate the conversation, cuts my meat, pushes the plate back, and voila, I can now enjoy the chicken dish and participate in the conversation. I went up to him way after that event. I touched him on the arm. I just looked him in the eyes and I said, thank you. And it wasn't even, I didn't need to go into some big thing. But again, it's that small act of, in this particular scenario, I spent so much emotional energy trying to figure out how I was going to logistically nourish my body, you know, feed myself. And this was such a small act for him and probably so many other people who literally eat their meals without even thinking. That to me was was another example that I sometimes share because oftentimes, and I'll take a step back, when we think about inclusion or we think about allyship, we can get so overwhelmed by the enormity of the task at hand or the systems we need to dismantle. When in reality, if I come back to the situational awareness, it was Jenny relaying a piece of feedback to me. It was Will I Am seeing that I wanted to enjoy my food but couldn't cut it. How can we think of, you know, we have microaggressions, but we also have micro inclusions. What are those small things? And then those are the things that add up, right? The microaggressions add up and the micro inclusions can add up as well. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for sharing that. That will stay with me for a long time. Just that simple act alone. But I have to ask you this. I think some people might be uncomfortable sometimes helping others or asking them if they can help because they don't want to insinuate that they need help. So what would you say they should ask you? You know, what what do you not mind being asked about when people just want to reach out to you? You know, what's so interesting is I get paid to to go out and deliver presentations about disability allyship, the takeaway is when in doubt, ask questions. But what we are finding is that even when we have opened up the invitation to have people ask us questions or ask if we need help, people are still feeling so uncomfortable to even cross over that threshold to say, hey, what do you need in this moment? And one of the things that I talk a lot about my work is that interdependence is a core part of being human. I think that we have, I don't know, I think over-indexed on this idea of independence that we need to do everything by ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I'm a coffee drinker and I did not grow my own coffee beans, right? That's an example of interdependence, right? And so if we actually look at how interconnected we actually are, just going up to someone and saying, what do you need in this moment is okay. And if I go back to you and I say, I don't need anything, Accept that answer, right? Disability or not, all of us need help in one way or another. So everyone has varying degrees of what they're comfortable with. And I can only speak from my personal experience. Feeling like a burden is one of the most harmful things that any of us can ever feel. And again, coming back to this whole idea of acts of inclusion or micro-inclusions, if we ask ourselves, how can we make sure that no one feels like a burden ever? I think that's a really great way to go about thinking about how should we ask questions if we want to help someone or even in ourselves, like how can we ask for support and not feel like a burden? Thank you for sharing that. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me and I will absolutely be looking out for that and thinking about ways I can make people certainly not feel that. You know, on the flip side of that, Tiffany, you've spoken a lot about the power of exclusion. 
And I'd love for you to just talk about how exclusion has manifested itself in your life. You ask all, all, the, all the best questions. So my first TEDx talk, it was called The Power of Exclusion. And for me, exclusion is the reason why I do the work that I do. I'll share a small story of what micro and macro exclusion look like to me, which is I had to take this mandatory physical education class after I became disabled every single year. And I would tie like exclusion and burden together, just knowing that I was existing in a space that people didn't want me to be in is a type of microaggression that we never forget. And I have this saying with my work that part of the reason why I created Diversibility is I wanted disability to be the reason to belong, not a reason to exclude. And when we think about disability, we are one of the most socially excluded groups out there. Because, you know, Sam, whether it's for you, like not knowing what questions to ask, feeling uncomfortable, tiptoeing around the fact that the way that I move about the world is so heavily influenced by the fact that I can't use one of my arms. Exclusion to me is the disease or the virus in our world today that I think has created so much polarization. Exclusion is a way that I think we give ourselves permission to others. And that's why I think I've dedicated so much of my work in life to building communities because it's actually in conversation that we learn. I'll just share one last tidbit with you, which is part of why I want to open up pathways for conversations that people feel comfortable enough to come and share those anecdotes with me is I want to know where your starting point is so that I can meet you there so that we can grow together, right? And I mentioned this in my talk too, right, which is when we feel excluded, we just become like a raisin of ourselves. And, and I, I don't know if that's a good visualization, but I just think about that 12-year period. I think it was a compounded effect of feeling those acts of exclusion every single day, whether it was physical education, but then also feeling really isolated in my home environment of not being able to talk to anyone. And again, when you don't have community and you don't realize that your experience is not atypical, then you stall growth and healing. Tiffany, you shared with us at our conference an old Japanese proverb that had meaning for you. And I'm wondering if you can repeat that here and talk about the lessons that you learned from hearing that as a child. Yeah. So the Japanese proverb roughly translated is the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. Just literally kind of means just blend in with the wallpaper. Don't draw any attention to yourself. And how that manifested for me was not being the fullest version of myself. It meant, again, you know, not telling anyone about the car accident, wearing long sleeves all the time to try to hide my disability, trying to anchor to what I thought was normal when in reality, all of us are normal because we exist, <laughs> you know? So that proverb, I think, holds so much meaning for me because it's only in recent years have I realized that I am gonna be that nail that sticks out. The experiences I had as a child, even if I didn't become disabled or not, is my nail. My message from the talk was that we don't have the luxury or privilege to disappear. It's our duty to be that nail. And you shared feedback at the beginning of our conversation around some of the feedback you've gotten from not only employees, but also clients. But I think so many of us in one way or another have internalized messages that we shouldn't be proud to be different. We shouldn't be proud to stick out when in reality, how can we lean into the fact that we are sticking out, 
see that as our power and understand that my nail sticking out is going to lend itself to all of these other nails sticking out. And I think about this gif of a woman lifting each other up. And that's really how I see what this nail is to me, which is I'm a nail that sticks out and there are these other nails that are sticking out and I'm literally pulling. Maybe that's what my hammer is doing. I'm using the other side of the hammer to pull all of the other nails out because that's like who we are. That's how we make this world more colorful. I love it. I mean, just the thought alone of a number of nails sticking out together in a beautiful board, I think is great. So let's talk about the mission behind that and how you put that mission into your company, Diversibility. How did you establish the company, first of all? And what is your main goal right now? You know, what do you hope you can achieve through it? Tied in with my second origin story is also the roots of diversibility. So diversibility to me is what I wish I had growing up. I wish I could be in community with other disabled people to realize that I didn't need to feel shame about my story or my body. One arm, which is not diversibility's main arm, one initiative that I started about four years ago with another disability advocate named Alice Wong is we run something called the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter. And we now award $1,000 monthly microgrants to disability projects globally. And to date, I think we're close to 60,000 awards to almost 60 projects in eight countries. And for one $1,000 grant, and as you and I know, $1,000 is like food at the event and the room rental. <laughs> Again, it's less about the money and more about a vote of confidence in a community that just have, hasn't received it in such a long time. And I think if we look at the goals of the Americans with Disabilities Act, one of the last goals is something called economic self-sufficiency. So how can disabled people make enough money to cover their basic needs and to be totally honest and I find myself kind of wearing my advocacy hat a little bit, and then I'll talk more about diversibility. That is the one area of the Americans with Disabilities Act that we really haven't made that much progress. Our unemployment rates are still astronomical, uh, which also means that you have kind of this perpetual cycle of poverty existing within our community. So, so much of kind of where I envision the future of where I want to make an impact is this economic redistribution, right? And so much of the work you do with women on the move is about that for women, right? So if you also add a layer of disability, it's it's another kind of like economic disparity that we're that we're seeing. Where we are now, where diversity is now, we've been around for 12 years, which is amazing. And one of the fascinating things about having done this work for over a decade is I have been able to see how much things have changed since 2009. And in 2009, I remember showing up for this grant and saying, I want to start a movement around disability pride. And one of the questions I got was, what does disability pride even mean? Like, how are you going to get people to care about disability? How can you be proud to be disabled? And now in 2021, we have certain cities that have declared July as Disability Pride Month. I can go out and tell people that I'm disabled and proud. There's a hashtag you can look up to see how many other people share feeling proud of just who they are and the fact that we exist. Part of the role of diversibility that makes me really proud is what I call serving as a talent incubator. And we have a team of eight and all of us identify as being disabled. And again, I'm thinking through this economic redistribution, right? How can I show that there is talent within this community? How can I stand by my values? And the money we make goes back into our community. 
Sam, I hope you never forget me and my story, but I hope your listeners also never forget it as well. And you'll go out and you'll say, oh, I met Tiffany or I met this other person. And that's how you create the stickiness. If anyone knows how to scale that, let me know. But again, I believe that how we change this world and again, at our core at Diversibility, not only is the self-actualization, how can you be proud to be that nail that sticks out? But also, how can you bring in people and create a level of intimacy and friendship and relationship that you know you're not the only one? So being that nail that sticks out in community. You know, we talk about allyship a lot, certainly when it comes to women. And we often get the question of, well, what does it mean to be an ally? What can I do? Give me something very specific to do. So if people are listening to this, how can they be an ally, first of all, in their own companies? What can they do immediately with the things that they touch every day, the processes, the people? And what could they do if they want to do more with your community? So a shameless plug for my friend, Brianna Epler, who literally wrote a book called How to Be an Ally. I'm quoted in there. Some other members of our community are also quoted in there. One of the things that we talked about was what does allyship mean? And all of us have different definitions. And so I'll share two so allyship is not, it's not just saying you're an ally. It's actually, what is the action that you're doing? It's, will I am cutting my meat? It is Jenny delivering feedback to me. To me, allyship is how can we create psychological safety for everyone who shows up, who walks through our doors? Because you were talking about, you know, what does allyship look like that we can bring back to our companies? I do want to share one stat. There was an Accenture study that came out in 2020 that said that about 76 to 80 percent of disabled employees and leaders aren't transparent about their disabilities at work. So four out of five disabled people in our workspaces are not feeling that they can be loud and proud. And, and not even just loud and proud, just transparent that the way their body and their mind works is different. And so that study to me, I bring it up because it also shows that we have more work to do in our workspaces. It's a great reminder, you know, at J.P. Morgan Chase, because we have so many employees, we do think about this regularly and often in terms of people's spaces, in terms of how they're interacting with technology for sure. But I would say that even for small companies, this is something that you can do. You can ask your employees, you know, it probably is even easier with smaller companies. You can ask employees what they need individually and you can make sure that they are not singled out. Yeah. And, and one other thing I'll share is as many of us moved online to Zoom or whatever video platform we chose, people had pets, dogs barking in the background, people had kids. And so we actually started to broaden the conversation around access needs to say, what time works best for you where, you know, your kids may be in in their online class so that you can be on the call and your dog is out for a walk, you know, so I think about access, of course, in terms of disability, but I also think about interdependence and the fact that all of us have have access needs. So we have a group called the Office of Disability Inclusion at J.P. Morgan Chase. And really, this is such an important, visible group that makes sure that we are thinking about these things all the time and in every region. And the notion of ableism is out there front and center. So what we look at as discrimination many times in terms of favoring able-bodied people, what can we do about that? How can we bring more awareness and acknowledgement that that exists? Do you think that the COVID period has improved things in a sense that it did bring more people on the screen visibility to each other and what they needed to work and work either remotely or in person? 
Are we seeing just more acknowledgement that people have a variety of needs? Or do you think that we haven't made as much progress as you would have liked in the last year and a half? Part of the reason why I share I've been doing this work for 12 years is things take time. And in the past year and a half, there's a great article that came out that talked about how some of us who have visible disabilities finally feel like we're equal in a Zoom environment because we recognize and acknowledge that sometimes the visible manifestations of our disabilities make people uncomfortable. And one of the things I talk a lot about in my work is that ending discrimination starts with self-reflection. And by self-reflection, I mean, can you acknowledge and vocally say that you feel uncomfortable with the visible manifestation of my disability? While that doesn't make me feel great, we can use that as a starting point to have a conversation. And I can say, well, what makes you think that? And you can say, well, I've never seen a hand that looks like that. And I could say, what other questions might you have, right? So again, it's growth comes through conversation. So in the past year and a half, we have made progress. Yes, remote working has been probably, I think, the number one most requested reasonable accommodation by certain disabled people that now is all of us have had experience with. And I think many of us are returning to a hybrid work environment. But I will also share two heartbreaking stats. One stat is that the in 2020, Senator Tom Harkin said that the unemployment rate for disabled people has generally remained unchanged since 1991, which was one year after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The second stat is that 2020 marked a seven-year high unemployment rate for disabled people. So Whatever that rate is, depending on how you're looking at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, sometimes you'll pick one number and it's like 60 percent or seven or some. Either way, it's bad. <laughs> and so I want to feel really hopeful that coming out of the past year and a half, we can hire more disabled people. Right. Again, that is how we achieve economic self-sufficiency. So I know I came into this conversation being like, community is so powerful. I often joke that diversibility to me is the employee resource group, your office of disability inclusion that exists outside of JP Morgan, that exists outside of the company. It is in this community, again, where we realize we have voice and power and influence as a collective and as a result can hopefully pave the way for more what I call possibility models in the workplace of people being senior leaders, being open about their disabilities and providing that permission slip. You know, I feel like this is a full circle conversation, providing that permission slip to say, I'm, you know, the managing director of XYZ at JP Morgan and I'm disabled. This could be you. I think growing up, I just didn't have a lot of role models of what disability looked like in the financial services industry. But to say, wow, our most senior leaders at this company have said in an interview or it's been documented somewhere that they do have a disability, that makes me feel like I can be here. The being able to see this is so important. That visibility of seeing others either like you or seeing that others have empathy and can really demonstrate an inclusivity, I think is so critical. You know, when you go out there and you talk to companies and organizations about this, what are the one or two things they can do to really signal they mean it? You can signal that you mean it all you want, but I want to talk to your disabled employees. I want to hear what's happening behind the scenes. I want to get involved with their ERG. I want to meet your ERG leaders, pay your ERG leaders, your disability ERG leaders. One question I've been asking a lot 
because I host a podcast and and this month's, this season's theme has been around advocacy and allyship is how do you know when your allyship is non-performative? I feel like performative allyship is something we've been throwing around for the past year and a half after George Floyd's murder. And again, it comes back to psychological safety. When I show up at work, do I feel like I can bring my full self or some version of it? And I remember in 2016 or in 2014, I I had the privilege of working for a company that was co-founded by P. Diddy. And I remember going into my interview and I was like, I was channeling my lean in Sheryl Sandberg. And I said, here are the things that I'm really looking for out of my next job opportunity. I would love to have a seat at the table and I'd love to have a voice at that table, not just sitting there, but actually being able to contribute. But I also want to be some version of my authentic self. I'm not going to bring, you know, the whole thing, but I at least want to be able to show up here and be embraced that I'm a nail that sticks out. Tiffany, you're so inspiring to me. I just love everything that you're advocating for. I love how you're using your voice. And I have to say, in hearing your stories, you've just taken every experience you've had and you've made it bigger. You've made it bigger than yourself. You've made it this big movement. And I just want to say thank you for all the people that you're reaching. It really makes a difference. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining my conversation with Tiffany Yu. I was so moved by her origin stories and her willingness to share them in the hope that they will inspire others. I encourage our listeners to think about the micro acts of inclusion that you can practice on a daily basis and how they can change someone else's life. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.